Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be in the book of 1 Thessalonians. I'll be reading the second chapter, first 13 verses. So that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from the people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, last week we began a study of uh, these two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to a newly planted church in the city of Thessalonica. That's a city that exists to this day in modern-day Greece. It's on the Aegean seacoast. In fact, it's the second largest metropolitan area in Greece, and it's considered their um, cultural center, if you will. And it was that way in the first century as well. It, it would get all kinds of traffic, both by, by water and by land. Um, by water, because it was a port city, a major port city, and busy, and uh, lots of uh, ships would come in and out of that city with their goods and purchasing goods. And then by land, because uh, Thessalonica was a favorite stop about halfway along the Ignatian Way, which was a major highway that Rome built to link all of their holdings over the, the known world at that time. And so the result of this is that the Th Thessalonica becomes a sort of commercial center with all sorts of uh, different characters and um, people from lots of different places and they're coming through and they're trying to peddle their various products. And it's not just physical products that people were pitching, but also lots of ideas, religious ones, philosophical ones. So it was very common in those days to have these uh, religious hucksters coming through town, peddling their ideas, you know, kind of wowing you with their fancy words and, and their persuasive rhetoric. And in, in all of these ways, they would gain a following 
And then they would bilk the followers out of their money or whatever else they wanted to get out of their followers. But before long, they would, they would just move on down the road, you know, to the next bunch of suckers. Um, leaving the, that original group of people disillusioned and often destitute. That was a very, very common occurrence. And I give you all of that background so that you can better understand what might be going on behind the scenes uh, in this letter. And last week we, we looked at chapter 1, um, in which Paul lists all the kinds of wonderful things that the Thessalonians are, are doing and have happened to them, things that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are able to profusely thank the Lord for. And even though all of that good stuff continues into chapter 2, there's some clues, I think, in our passage today that everything's not so hunky-dory in Thessalonica. Um, and we can, here's a couple of those clues. For one, you know, Paul writes, as you know, or as you yourselves know, or God is our witness. He writes those sorts of things a bunch of times. It appears over and over in these verses. And he, he keeps calling on the Thessalonians and on God to, to be witnesses of, of what they themselves have seen with their own eyes. In addition, there's lots of negatives in this passage. And by negatives, I mean there's a bunch of, you know, nots and nors and nevers. And I'm saying that these are clues that this chapter is largely a defense against accusations that have come Paul's way. It, has, it really has that flavor to it. Even though it's full of wonderful truths that no doubt will be encouraged by, you, you need to recognize that this in the first place is a sort of defense on the part of Paul uh, towards all of these accusations that are coming to him and the rest of this apostolic band. And it's not too much of a stretch, I don't think, to kind of reconstruct what the issue likely was. Likely. Well, just remember that after only a few weeks of, of being in that town, the persecution reached a point that Paul and Silas were forced to escape in the middle of the night. You know, they were secreted out of the town and they had to move on to Berea. And you can imagine how quickly the hostility, which was, you know, first on Paul and Silas, would, would move to the believers that remained. That they, these new believers would be the target of all of this persecution. At a minimum, these believers would certainly be subject to all sorts of mockery. Mockery that might have gone something like this. Ha ha! There's a sucker born every minute. This Paul character comes to town, and he's no different from the thousands of shysters that have come before him, and the, the millions that will come after him, and he's charmed you with his fancy words. He's told you all the things that you wanted to hear. He, he got what he wanted, you know, he probably got your money and he seemed to get a lot of women. And now he's rushed on out of here. You know, fly by night away from here. 
and you've completely changed your life. And for what? What was all of this for? You, you guys are so gullible. I think it's not a stretch to imagine that that was the message in Thessalonica after Paul and, and Silas had to rush out of there. And let's just be honest and recognize that the United States of America in the year 2022 isn't all that different from Thessalonica in the year 51. We've got the same kind of religious hucksters, hucksterism, if I could put it that way. You know, any given time that you can, you, you tune into religious broadcasting, you see these, you know, toothy, slick-haired, self-proclaimed apostles scamming granny out of her social security check. Or, or maybe it's not so obvious. You know, maybe when you turn on the TV, you see these celebrity pastor types, you know, in, in expensive sneakers with multicolored stage lights and fog machines. And, and they're, they're sharing these light, feel-good messages to thousands and thousands of people. And people say to you things like, oh, you're a Christian? Like, uh, like Benny Hinn? Or uh, Joel Osteen, he's one of your guys, isn't he? Or Stephen Furtick. And so you find yourself in that unenviable position of having to describe the significant differences between your beliefs and theirs. Between a fraudulent ministry and a faithful one. This is the position that Paul finds himself in. Having to give a defense of himself and of his ministry in the face of all kinds of opposition and criticism. And, and we reap the benefits because what comes down to us in this passage, I think, is a, a beautiful description of what constitutes a faithful ministry. Now, of course, in the first instance, Paul is talking about his apostolic ministry. When we use that word apostle or apostolic, I think we probably need to distinguish between a, a big A apostle and a little A apostle. A big A apostle being a, you know, someone belonging to that very small and special class of Jesus' followers who were given a particular authority for a particular time based on their having been with Jesus and having been eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Uh, that group of 12 or so are big A apostles. And Paul qualifies as a big A apostle, even though he uh, wasn't with Jesus in the course of his ministry. He was, as he says, uh, one untimely born. Um, and yet Jesus appeared to him post-resurrection and gave him this qualification of apostleship. So Paul is a big A apostle. Silvanus and Timothy are not. They, they haven't been with Jesus. They hadn't been witness to his resurrection. Nevertheless, in verse 6, Paul says we, and he's referring to himself and probably them as well, and together, look at how that verse works, together they are 
apostles of Jesus Christ. So I think Paul is probably using, he's speaking of more generally, you know, a small a apostleship here. And then I think you can speak even more generally than that of every believer ever from all time who has been sent out, you know, by Jesus, um, given this great commission to, to share the good news of the gospel and to go into every um, corner of the globe. So I, I mention all of that to say that when we're talking today about ministry and what constitutes faithful ministry, we're talking about ministry on all fronts. Okay, whether you're an apostle or a pastor or a missionary or a mom, an evangelist, no matter your role, we are all to be engaged in ministry. And so I think it'll be very helpful for us to look at this passage and discover what constitutes faithful ministry. Don't think that this only applies to me as a pastor or someone else. Uh, this is what would mark your ministry as well, um, if, if God would be so pleased. And here's what I think this passage is teaching. Here is faithful ministry in a nutshell. It's delivering God's gospel with God's boldness for God's glory in God's manner. I tried to boil it down to one little statement here, and uh, hopefully that's helpful for you. Faithful ministry in a nutshell is this. It's delivering God's gospel with God's boldness for God's glory in God's manner. And uh, in the time that we have remaining, I want us to kind of break that down into the parts and so that we can understand it and so that we can live it by God's grace. Let's look first at the first little part. It is delivering God's gospel. So let's come straightway to the, the most distinctive feature of a faithful ministry. And it has everything to do with the content, the message. And I want to draw your attention to a key phrase in this text, uh, one that's repeated throughout, which indicates its importance, I think. And that phrase, that word is the gospel, the gospel. And just scan uh, with your eyes, scan through the, the passage and, and just see if you can, your eyes can land on that phrase a bunch of times. There it is in verse 2 the gospel in verse 4 um, again in verse 8 and then in verse 9 the gospel this is kind of like the backbone that runs through Paul's description of a faithful ministry it's all about the gospel the gospel the gospel the gospel he's repeating this and it's ringing out like a bell so that we don't miss it Obviously, the gospel is central in a faithful ministry. But what exactly is the gospel? We don't want to just assume that we know and that we understand. If it's so central, if it's so crucial, then we need to know what it is that we're to be about. Well, the word itself literally means good news. Good news. It's a, it's a message, then, of good news. And you'd think that would be welcome in a world 
in a day even like ours in which all we seem to encounter is bad news an, an active shooter in buffalo a possible active shooter in chilai inflation no more baby formula just general nastiness among the populace wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice to hear some good news for a change but the, but the good news is only good news against the backdrop of bad news. And the bad news is, is this, that sin is in the world. That's why we get all of those headlines every day. And, and sin is not just out there as a problem. Sin is in here. That's the problem. At the, at the beginning of the last century, the, the Times of London had a number of well-known contemporary authors write pieces answering this provocative question. What's wrong with the world? And the most insightful of the submissions, I think, was, was just one sentence long. And it said this, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. He's the problem with the world, and I'm the problem with the world. You're the problem with the world because we are sinners, and we have sin that's bound up in our hearts from the time that we have been conceived. The bad news is that I'm a sinner who is justly deserving of God's wrath. He, he's our creator and our judge, and, and our sin, therefore, is, is treason. It's high treason and rebellion against him. And therefore, it's worthy of our eternal separation from him in a place called hell. The very good news is that there is one who can save us from that wrath. As the last verse of chapter 1 uh, announced. And this savior, that, that verse also announced, is Jesus Christ, the son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who lived a life of perfect obedience, um, maintaining a, a, a record of perfect righteousness, but despite that, died on a cross in the place of sinners. And Jesus saves us from the wrath to come because that, that wrath was poured out on him instead of me, the sinner. He was the sacrificial lamb. He was my substitute so that I can be forgiven. In verse 10 of that previous uh, chapter, chapter 1 says that Christ was raised from the dead. This is part of the good news. And he's coming again one day to save all of those who have repented of their sins and have embraced him by faith. He, he's coming as the king of a heavenly kingdom where all of his people are going to live in the light of glory forever. And that's the exceedingly good news. That's the gospel. And that is what lies at the very heart of faithful ministry. But I've stripped this phrase down a little bit to just the gospel. There's actually a fuller phrase as it appears in this passage. If you scan back through, say, verses 4 and 8 and 9, you'll see that the full phrase is, 
the gospel of God. The gospel of God. This, this reflects the amazing fact that the good news that we're announcing, this plan for the salvation of sinners, originates with God himself. That, that, all of this is his plan. And that is astounding when you consider that God is actually the offended party. Usually, if you've done something uh, wrong to someone, as we have to God, so, so such that you're the one that's totally guilty and they're completely innocent, usually, in our way of thinking, it's, it's totally up to you to take the initiative to reconcile. You broke the relationship. You can figure out how to fix it. But not so... Not so with the gospel. And thankfully, that's a not so because there is absolutely nothing we can do to fix it. There's nothing that we could ever say or do to make things right with a holy and a righteous God. All of our attempts even to try to do so would be stained with sin. And so they would actually only add to our offenses against him. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The good news is, is that all of this is God's plan from start to finish. It's the gospel of God. And so it's God's gospel that lies at the very heart of faithful ministry. But there's one more little piece here. It's not just the gospel. It's not just God's gospel, the gospel of God. There are verbs that attach to this phrase. There are imperatives that accompany these mighty nouns, if I could put it that way. So again, just scan back through with me. Look at verse 2. The gospel of God is declared. Verse 2, the gospel is first entrusted and then it's spoken. Verse 8, the gospel of God is shared. Verse 9, the gospel of God is proclaimed. And do you see, again, if this is a bell that's ringing out throughout, the, the message is clear, I think. A faithful ministry is one that is laser-focused on delivering God's gospel to those who desperately need to hear it. It's a message that must be spoken and shared and proclaimed and declared for the salvation of sinners. A fraudulent ministry is one that is focused on any other message than that message. Any other message than the message of the gospel. And you'll be able to recognize the, the religious huckster if you hear him or her studiously avoiding saying anything about sin and salvation. And instead, they're, they're talking about, you know, your best life now or how to be healthy and wealthy and wise and how to achieve your dreams or giving you principles for human flourishing, or, or some, other, some other thing, any other thing than the gospel, that, friends, is a fraudulent, 
That's not a faithful ministry. A faithful ministry is one that never deviates from the gospel of God and insists on sharing that message whenever and wherever possible. But let's add our second point. A faithful ministry delivers God's gospel with God's boldness. All of these other messages that I mentioned, they, they don't require boldness. Because these are, all of these other things are messages that people very much like to hear. People, Paul will elsewhere write that, that you know, people have assembled these kinds of um, teachers to tickle their ears, to give them this kind of ear candy. And you don't need to be brave to speak a message that tells people that they're basically good, maybe just a little bit unfulfilled, and you don't have to have a, a spine made out of steel in order to tell an audience that they should be asking God for less disease and more money. It doesn't take any boldness whatsoever. But to declare a message that tells everyone that they're a sinner and, and posits death on a, a shameful Roman cross as the solution and then grounds all of our hope for the future in the fact that a person who has been dead for three days is now raised from the dead, well, that's going to require boldness. Because the natural man thinks that all of that is just foolish and, and ridiculous. It's offensive. And to speak this message is to invite persecution almost immediately. So Paul reminds these believers what happened to him and Silas in Philippi. This was where this team was right before they arrived in Thessalonica. And if you need a bit of a reminder, you can certainly read about this in Acts chapter 16. As they were preaching the gospel in Philippi, they came across this demon-possessed slave girl who, because, because she was possessed, you know, had the extraordinary ability to tell people's fortunes and consequently made a ton of money for her owners. But upon seeing Paul and the crew under the influence of the, the demons, um, this little girl shouted out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It's a, it's an unbelie it's a wonderful admission, uh, ultimately on, on the part of these evil spirits. Uh, but it was, a, it was a tad annoying, even if it was true. And, uh, and, and so she's shouting this out. And when I say shouting out, I mean repeatedly for days. And it became so annoying that Paul cast out the demon in Jesus' name, which put an immediate end to the annoyance, but it also put an immediate end to the revenue stream. And so long story short, Paul and Silas are seized, they're stripped naked, they're beaten with rods, and they're thrown into prison. In, in Paul's own words in our passage, uh, they, they had suffered and they had been treated shamefully you know, even though they're Roman citizens and, and afforded the right not to have all that stuff happen to them, 
all of that stuff happened to them. And it was shameful. And now they've arrived, kind of by the skin of their teeth, they've arrived in Thessalonica. And it doesn't take much imagination to understand that their flesh must have just been screaming out at them to just be quiet. You know, the, the flesh was trying to get their, their hands clasped over their mouths. You've heard that expression, once bit and twice shy? Well, needless to say, the, the pressure to soft pedal the message, if, if not to be completely silent, that must have been overwhelming. But that's not what they did. Paul says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So the, as soon as they land there, as soon as they start preaching in Thessalonica, the arrows are already flying. And this apostolic band of brothers is undeterred. That, my friends, is boldness. And I'm suggesting that that is a true mark of a faithful ministry. Is that something that you struggle with in your own ministry? Boldness. Does the fear of persecution or even of, of just mockery, does the fear of man often prevent you from declaring the gospel of God? I think it does for, for so many of us. And we like to get ourselves off the hook by saying things like, well, I'm, I'm just not a, a bold person. I'm, I'm fearful. I'm shy. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an extrovert. You know, there's certain other people that are just kind of wired that way. I'm not like the Apostle Paul. You know, now there was a bold man, the Apostle Paul. Nothing, he was fearless. Nothing seemed to faze him. Oh, really? Are you talking about the same Apostle Paul who, who asked, you know, churches to, to pray for him in this respect? He gives this kind of prayer request, like the one he, he uh, makes in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. He says, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You, you, think this, you think this was no problem for, for Paul? No, this is why he's begging for you to pray, for, for believers to pray for him on this issue. It seems like boldness is something that even Paul, the great apostle Paul, struggled with. And it may be reassuring for you to discover that, once again, I haven't given you the whole phrase. Okay, It's not just boldness that marks faithful ministry. It's God's boldness. Paul doesn't say in verse 2, you know, we, we mustered up our own resident boldness. No, he says we had boldness in God. Once again, God is spoken of as the source of something. In this case, he's the source and he's the grounds of the very boldness that's necessary to declare the message of the gospel. Boldness, therefore, is something that, that God delights to give. And he imparts it 
you know, in his servants by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why we, all of us, like Paul, must pray for boldness and ask others to pray for our boldness. It's not our boldness they're praying for. It's, it's boldness in God. It's God's boldness. And just one more little thing I want to mention before we move on. Consider the consequences of a lack of boldness in God. You know, if Paul and Silas and Timothy had succumbed to their fear and their natural resistance to persecution, what would be the result, humanly speaking? You know, you, you've, had the, you've had the benefit of, of hearing some of the history of what went on in, in Thessalonica there. So I think we're in a good position to just imagine what the outcome would be if Paul and this band succumbed to their fear. What would be the result? There would be no church in Thessalonica. And you've got to follow the logic of what Paul's written so far. That the gospel was proclaimed to them and the Holy Spirit attended the word so that it resulted in their powerful conversion, their salvation. And then that word has echoed forth from them into other places. It's spreading like wildfire. And all of this starts with boldness in God to declare the gospel of God. I, I don't, I don't want to guilt trip you here, but I think it is, it is maybe challenging to consider. Have you ever considered the consequences of your cowardice? Have I considered the consequences of mine? That salvation will not have come to a certain house or a workplace or a country because we gave in to our cowardice rather than God's boldness. Maybe, brothers and sisters, may we not give in to timidity, but may we possess boldness in God, uh, serving courageously in the strength that he provides. So faithful ministry is delivering God's gospel with God's boldness. Third, for God's glory. And that point might be so obvious to you. That phrase might be sound so familiar to you that you'd be in danger of missing this point completely. And I, I, I understand that the glory of God is kind of stock phraseology in Christianity especially in the circles that we run in. Glorifying God is, is nothing less than the chief end of man. This is why we've been created. It's where everything begins and where everything is headed. So look, for example, in, chapter, in verse 12 at the end of the passage. It speaks of God's kingdom and his glory. Everything begins and ends with the glory of God. And you, you know all of this, I'm sure. But I'm, I'm just fearful that it would be an empty and obvious phrase to you. So I want you to understand just how practical and helpful an understanding of God's glory might be for your ministry. For starters, I think it'll save us from the crippling fear of man that we have. And the glory-seeking of which we are all so capable Let's just admit. This is, this is what Paul was being accused of. 
They said that what motivated him was winning crowds and, and greed. Uh, they said that he was a flatterer, that he was a crowd pleaser, that he just, you know, said what people wanted to hear so that they would give him glory and honor and all of the usual stuff that came along with that. But these accusations couldn't be further from the truth. The exact opposite is the case. And again, I, I think it'll be easy at this point to follow the logic because <clears throat> we already have many of the pieces in place. For example, we've seen how the gospel is God's gospel. So I think then it, it can be very easy to see how, how Paul can speak in verse 4 of being approved by God and entrusted by God with the gospel. Okay, so it's God's gospel, and now he's approved Paul with this gospel and entrusted Paul and these apostles with the gospel. And right off the bat, then, that changes everything. Before I was called here to, to be your pastor, I worked for a pump company in Louisville, Kentucky, for a few years, and they gave me all kinds of opportunities to travel around the country and even to different countries and I, you know, representing the, the company and their products. And it never ceased to just blow me away, honestly, how, how they could approve me and entrust me to represent Zoller Pump Company, which is a, a very successful family operation, you know, that had been, that has been in business for, for decades. And let me just tell you that, that recognition totally affected how I conducted myself on those trips. You know, for example, I, I don't wear my own personal clothes. I wore clothes that had the, the company logo emblazoned on them. Furthermore, I wasn't going around promoting my own personal brand. Everything that I did, everything that I said, promoted my company's brand or it detracted from it. Everything I did or said was a direct reflection on Zoller. And I, I would have to give a report of my activities to my boss, to my supervisor, and he would scrutinize my receipts, that sort of thing. Do you see how that, that changes everything? And if you wear a shirt that says Danforth or Tops or Noise, then I suspect that you too will be able to understand what Paul's getting at in verse 4. When he says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. You see, a, a faithful minister of the gospel is all about God's glory. He or she makes it their aim to please God, not, not other people. They, they take their marching orders from the Lord, not from the crowd. They, they seek the, the glory and the honor that comes from God and not the glory and the honor that comes from their fellow man. Even though, Paul says at the end of verse 6, even though there's a certain respect that is due an apostle of Christ. There's a, there's a certain amount of honor and deference that you ought to be giving a, a, a minister of the gospel. There's a certain honor and glory that they could have demanded, but they didn't. 
They were happy to die to themselves in that respect because they were dead set on pursuing the glory of God alone. What does faithful ministry look like? It looks like delivering God's gospel with God's boldness for God's glory and fourthly, in God's manner. In God's manner. And this brings us to verses 7 and following. And what we have here is a couple of beautiful, I think, similes, um, comparisons that are made that kind of describe in a more picturesque way what faithful ministry looks like. And the first one is a maternal simile. You see that there in verse 7? But we were gentle among you. And again, this is in contrast to this demand for, um, for, for honor and glory that would be rightfully theirs as servants of the Lord. They, they had an authority that they could certainly demand and make demands on these people, but they didn't. Instead, it says they were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That's, that's a, a beautiful imagery there. And we can, all, we can all understand just right away, immediately, what that looks like and feels like and brings all sorts of warm fuzzies. And, and he's saying that this is describing their ministry among the Thessalonians. And I, I love that. I really love that. I, I think, and it's striking, isn't it, that, uh, that he would use a feminine, a maternal sort of simile to describe these things. I think there is uh, a lot of worry out there, especially among conservative churches, that, that um, ministry these days has become too feminine. Uh, the pulpit and just the, our general way of doing things as a church is way too sissified, if you will. But I think what Paul is saying, and, and certainly that's the case in, in some respects. Uh, let's, let's just say that. Uh, there's, there's definitely an imbalance. But I'm, I'm here to suggest, based on what Paul is saying here, that our ministry is maybe not feminine enough in the sense that it is not characterized for the most part by gentleness and tenderness and self-giving, the kind that a mother gives uh, that Paul's ministry was characterized by in the first century. I think we are far too likely to exert our, our dominance and our strength and and uh, to be, to be a bully and to demand to make demands, rather than to take this posture of of gentleness among the people that we are um, seeking to share the gospel with and raise up in the faith. And and it continues this this tender language, loving language. So in verse eight, being affectionately desirous of you. We're ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. The word there is our souls, because you have been become very dear to us. Do you, I, do you wonder with me if that is a missing element 
in our ministry, in our evangelism, when we're interacting with uh, people in the world, we see them as a, a, as a project, and, and really uh, what we feel ourselves called to do is to just coldly give them this message which they need to hear and which will save them. And yet we do it so in such a sterilized way that it's ineffective because we haven't, we haven't even liked them. We haven't become affectionately desirous of them. We haven't shared our, our very souls with them. Do you, do you wonder with me at how much more effective our, our gospel ministry might be is if, if we actually had that level of, of love and devotion and care and gentleness? These, these are certainly very challenging words. But then there is a, there's also a paternal kind of simile in case you thought we were going too far on one direction. And there does have to be certain manly, fatherly aspects to the ministry. And the, and the fatherly one that is brought out, it's, it's brought out if you skip down to verse 11. It says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this is, the, this is what dads do, right? They, they give you that pep talk. They, they sit you down and they, and they really strongly encourage you to take this direction or, or that. And if everything's working correctly in that relationship, I know this was true in the case of whenever my father sat me down to have a, a talk, I took that deadly serious and it motivated me and it and it really did encourage me to pursue that direction that my father thought was wisest and this this is the this is the role that a faithful minister can have is 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 you're able to to strongly encourage other people and and to even um to uh charge them and this is this is what um paul charged them they needed to walk in a manner in a manner that is worthy of God, who calls you to His own kingdom and glory. So, this two aspects of, of ministry, two similes. I think when you take them together, um, show a, a complete and balanced picture. We're to be gentle, like mothers, and kind and compassionate, and and, and loving and sharing, giving our very selves to another. And then, like fathers, we are called to exhort and encourage uh, to walk in a manner that worthy. And, um, and so uh, we see that faithful ministry also includes all of this conduct. And he says here, um, you were witnesses, verse 10, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. So they, they had purity of, of life. There, there was no charge that, that could be legitimately uh, raised against them. And not only that, they had, they had rights as apostles to receive support from these new Christians, from this newly formed church, and yet it's a, it's a right that they didn't um, take. Instead, they worked hard night and day so as to not be a burden to this young congregation. So the charge that's coming against them, that they're working for greed or for all of these ill-gotten uh, 
motives, uh, it's, it's false on its, on its face. And uh, they instead are wonderful example, examples to these new believers. Well, so much more that we could say about these things, but I do want to just point out that this is not Paul's manner, that this is not Paul's conduct, but this is, if you, if you uh, read how Paul describes himself and Sylvanus and Timothy, you can't help but picture God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, because it's God himself that is described in Scripture as like a mother in some respects, like a mother hen who, who covers her chicks. Um, he's described also as a, as a father, of course, um, showing the perfect balance of, of, um, of how, to, how to totally care for a person. And then you notice this conduct is, is, is godly and Christ-like. Holiness, righteousness, these are characteristics that point all the way back to God. And so must our conduct be holy and righteous and godly. And our conduct ought to match. It ought to be in keeping with. It ought to be um, in a manner worthy of the gospel that we proclaim. A faithful ministry is one in which there's no hypocrisy. There's no distance between what we proclaim, what we preach, and how we live. And so you take all of this together and you wonder, if you're anything like me, who is sufficient for all of these things? If, if this is what describes faithful ministry, well, where am I in, in, in all of this? And the obvious answer is no one really is sufficient for these things, but the Lord is. And that's why it's so reassuring to see how God-centered all of this is. It's reassuring this is the Lord's project, and he's pleased to approve you and me and entrust us with the gospel. And so we, we do so. We seek to do so as, as faithful ministers. And I think that this will be helpful for us to keep in mind. These points will be helpful for us to... Um, to recenter us and reorder us as we move out and uh, seek to spread the gospel this summer, uh, beginning this week even. Uh, may the Lord be pleased to, to work in us and through us. Uh, may we be faithful and may he bear eternal fruit by the power of his spirit. Amen. Amen.